All right. Well, it's good to see everybody. Welcome. Glad that you're here for our Bible study. We close out Zechariah tonight, and this is our last session. Look at verses, uh, chapter 14, verses 12 through 21, and this is our 18th session in Zechariah. So it's taken us, what, a third of a year to get through it. But tonight is the last night, and uh, we will uh, wrap it up with a, another good section talking about the coming of the day of the Lord. And uh, we'll, after tonight, we'll have different topics and texts throughout the rest of the summer. And then starting on August the 30th, we will have um, start the next series again, and that will be in the book of First Peter. The title of it is Culture Shock. And uh, basically, it, we're living in a culture that is antagonistic to what we believe many times, and so did those uh, in First Peter's day. They were living in a culture that was antagonistic to the Christian faith. And uh, so a lot of similarities in, in First Peter. I think you'll find it interesting, and we'll start that on August the 30th, and that'll take us to the fall uh, looking at First Peter. Glad you're here tonight. Hope that you have your Bibles with you. If you're joining us online, we welcome you wherever you are and however you may be joining us. Whatever day you're joining us, sometimes people watch the days after Wednesday night. But hope that you have your uh, word as well. It, again, makes a lot more sense if you can follow along with me as I, as I go through the passage. So I hope that you have your Bible with you tonight. Let's pray together and we'll get started. God, thank you for the opportunity to study your words, Zechariah powerful book for us and I thank you for it and thank you for what it means to us not just today but in the days to come Lord whenever you see fit to culminate the world we, we get a glimpse as to what's going to happen and so I pray that God you'd teach us tonight from your word about that from Zechariah 14 God thank you for everyone who's joined us whether it's live or online and just pray your blessings upon them and God I just pray the Holy Spirit again would be our teacher this evening in Jesus name I pray amen all right, well, we have our final exam before we, uh, before we move on. So we have 10 questions tonight. Hopefully you've studied and you'll pass the course tonight, hopefully. But uh, anyway, 10 questions that cover the entire, entirety of the book. So let's see how many of them that you get. Question number one, what does the name Zechariah mean? So just think of it in your mind or jot it down. Okay, that's a give me. Everybody gets the first one. You probably know that I've asked it so many times. What does the name Zechariah mean? Question number two, when was the book written? 8th century, 7th century, or 6th century? When was Zechariah written? 8th century, 7th, or 6th century? Question three, why was the book written? Two reasons that the book was written. We've covered that several times. Two reasons why Zechariah prophesied and then Zechariah wrote. What are those reasons? All right, question number four, how many visions did Zechariah have? Those visions are covered in the first several chapters. How many visions did Zechariah have? Question number five, what were the names of the two leaders of the Jews mentioned in Zechariah when they returned to Israel? He mentions two, one, two people's names. One was a high priest and one was the builder, the civic leader. One was a spiritual leader and one was a civic leader. So the names of the two leaders mentioned in Zechariah. Question six, what military leader fulfilled the prophecies of chapter nine? What historical military leader fulfilled the prophecies of chapter nine of Zechariah? All right, question seven. What was the name of the two staffs Zechariah held up in chapter 11? They represented God and how he dealt with his people. 
the names of two staffs, as a shepherd as a staff that he named and held up, and then they eventually broke both of them, symbolizing God would break that with his people as well. Name the two staffs in chapter 11. Question number eight, who was the military leader who destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70, which would be after Christ? Prophesied here, but the leader would come from the Roman army. What was the Roman military leader's name who destroyed Jerusalem? 70 A.D. All right, question number nine, what will happen to the Mount of Olives when Jesus returns a second time? What is going to happen to the Mount of Olives when Jesus comes back? And then question number 10, what will happen to the water in Jerusalem when Jesus returns a second time? It's going to happen to the water in Jerusalem when Jesus returns. All right, let's see, give the answer so you can check 100 on there. Question one, what does the name Zechariah mean? Yahweh remembers, God remembers, absolutely. Question two, when was the book written? Eighth century, seventh century, sixth century? Sixth, exactly right. Sixth century. Eighth century prophets primarily Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah. Those four others are seventh and sixth century. Zechariah is one of the later ones uh, that wrote, so he would be sixth century. All right, now, number three, why was the book written? Two purposes. Keep building, number one, keep build, rebuilding the temple and Jerusalem. And number two, the, the glory days of Israel, Jerusalem are ahead, not behind it. They thought their best days were behind them. But uh, they, the glory days are ahead of them, not behind them. And it's part of what we're going to see tonight in chapter 14. Question four, how many visions did Zechariah have? Eight, absolutely, eight visions. Question five, what were the names of the two leaders of the Jews mentioned in Zechariah when they returned to Israel. Zer, excuse me, Zerubbabel, excuse me, and Joshua. Zerubbabel and Joshua. Question six, what military leader fulfilled the prophecies of chapter nine? <clears throat> Alexander the Great, absolutely. Greek uh, empire, absolutely Alexander the Great. Question seven, what was the name of the two staffs Zechariah held up in chapter 11? Union and favor. Remember that? One name, union, one name, favor, and broke both of them. Representing how God dealt with his people, he granted them favor and he unified them, and both of those would be broken. Question number eight Who was the military leader who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD? Titus, absolutely, was the military leader at the time, later became an emperor. Titus. Question number nine What will happen to the Mount of Olives when Jesus returns? Earthquake's going to split it. In two, one part go north, one part go south. Absolutely. And then question 10, what will happen to the water in Jerusalem when Jesus returns? It will be an ever-flowing stream. Half of it will flow to the eastern sea, half of it to the western sea, Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea will, will be uh, filled with fresh water and fresh fish, uh, fresh water fish. So that will happen when Jesus returns. Anybody get all of them? Okay, all right, one, a couple, all right, all right, two, that's very good, missed only one. How many missed only one? Quite a few, okay, very good, very good, good job. Everybody passed the course, isn't that good? That's good. All right, let's go to the end of chapter 14 tonight, and we'll pick up with 12. First of all, letter A on your outline, let's kind of give an overview so we can get a context as to where we are and what we're talking about tonight. As you know, some... 
the Israelites were in bondage in, the, in, in, uh, in Babylon, in exile. God allowed them to return back to their homeland after 70 years. Most of the Jews stayed there. They were pretty comfortable in Babylon. The younger ones raised their kids for the last 70 years there. It was home, and things were going pretty well. You can make a good living. So they just stayed, most of them. Some of the older ones returned, and so whenever they did, then God told them they needed to rebuild and start to rebuild back. So they would rebuild the altars, first of all, so they could sacrifice again. And then after that, they would uh, try to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem itself. They did this for a while, got discouraged, and quit. Why would they get discouraged? Well, mostly older people working on it. They didn't have much money, didn't have much income, and so all of that. And so it was really hard work. So they got discouraged and quit. Neighbors around them were discouraging them and finally stopped after they got discouraged. And after 18 years of stopping, then God raised up Zechariah to tell them, number one, keep rebuilding, don't stop. And second of all, you think your best days are behind you, but your glory days are in front of you. They are coming in the future. So that's what the book is about. And you know as the outline of Zechariah, as we've talked about, first eight chapters, primarily 520 B.C., uh, one chapters 1 through 8, one section, then chapters 9 through 14 is the second section, seemed to be a little later. That's why some people think, well, did he write at the same time? But I think he's just seeing into the future, 9 through 14. And we subdivide 9 through 14 into 9 through 11 and 12 through 14. 9 through 11 talks about Jesus' first coming. 12 through 14 talks about his second coming. So that's kind of how Zechariah breaks down. If you're reading 9 through 11, it's about Jesus' first coming in general, 12 to 14 in general, about his second coming. So chapter 14 now, to end Zechariah, we're talking about the last days. What's going to happen when the world ends? Revelation talked a little bit about that, Battle of Armageddon. It's going to be the battle to end all battles. So nations are going to come and fight against Israel in the Battle of Armageddon. So chapter 14 is describing what happens as soon as Armageddon is over. So that's where we get to tonight. So look at letter B on your outline, the coming day of the Lord, part one. That was last Wednesday night. Let me just kind of recap the first part of the chapter before we go to the end of the chapter. Last week, you may remember, starting in 14, verse 1, it's a picture of Armageddon. Revelation 16 talks about this, verses 16 to 21. Picture the final battle, and here's what's going to happen as it all starts to wind down. There's going to be a worldwide ideology develop that Israel's going to disagree with. And the entire world will pretty well be in favor of it, except for Israel. So, there will be a coup of nations gathered together, band together, who are going to come against Israel trying to get them to submit, force them to submit, so there will be an international world order worldwide. So, as you know, the armies will assemble. They will come in from the north. They'll march to the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Armageddon, the hill of Megiddo. Uh, and so they'll come in through that way. The battle will start there, and the nations will start winning. Revelation talked about that. It will look good for the nations at first and bad for Israel. And then they will continue to march south. Then the armies will march into Jerusalem and initially begin to capture the city. 
we saw last week, they will pillage the city, they will rape women, they will get almost ready to capture Jerusalem when all of a sudden, God interferes. God intervenes and begins fighting for Israel, and he will defeat the League of Nations. That's what's talked about the first part of chapter 14 from last week. He will defeat the League of Nations. Jesus will return, second time, step foot on the Mount of Olives, an earthquake will split the Mount of Olives. You talked last week about how it's under a fault line, the Dead Sea Rift fault line that runs through there. Very strong, very powerful. Israel is prepared for a major earthquake that's going to happen. An earthquake, the mountains will be split in two. The Bible said last week, verse 6, there will be no light, no cold, no frost. The heavenly bodies will, the word in Hebrew literally means to congeal. So they'll, they'll start to solidify and the sun will start not shine as brightly. Talks about that. And then the waters will flow out of Jerusalem to the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea, and the western sea, which is the Mediterranean. And the mountains surrounding Jerusalem will be leveled by the earthquake and Jerusalem will remain aloft. And Jerusalem, the Bible says, will dwell securely. And so it will be safe. God will have it. Armageddon's over. Now, what happens next? That's where we get to chapter 12, um, uh, chapter 14, verse 12. So, go to letter C on your outline. Let's look at the passage tonight, the coming day of the Lord, part 2, verses 12 to 21. Read verse 12 with me. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. That's the armies that come against them. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. What's a pleasant thought there, isn't it? Let's look at that verse. So now we have a picture of what's going to happen when the final battle of Armageddon is fought. Many of those who are fighting against Israel and fighting against the Lord... Many of the remaining who are not killed in the battle will then begin to worship the God of Israel. Others will not and will face drought, but for the most part, many of them will begin worshiping the God of Israel. So think about this. They're coming against Israel because they're angry with their ideology and they obviously hate their faith. And the battle is going to be so powerful and so destructive that many of them who survive will turn to be on God's side. They're going to turn to the Lord from the nations, and they will begin worshiping the God of Israel. So God will smite the nations that are coming against Israel. Now, here's just a side note. The language that's used in Hebrew, starting in verse 12, is very much the language of Leviticus. Why would it be Leviticus? Why would it be the law? Because whenever God first established his covenant with his people, back in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible, he told them, if you obey, there will be blessing. If you disobey, there will be curses. And he began to enumerate in Leviticus and Deuteronomy in different places what some of the curses will be. 
whenever he did, those words he used that would curse Israel if they disobeyed, exact same words now reappear at the end of Zechariah. So what is he saying? He's saying the same applied whether you're my people or not my people. If you obey me, there will be blessings. If you disobey me, there will be curses. Now the Israelites, they took this to heart. So every year, one of their festivals was called the New Year Festival. And every year, they would recite as a nation Leviticus 26, verses 16 to 39. What's that? Those are the curses that would happen to you if you don't obey. So their New Year's resolution was not to eat black-eyed peas and cornbread. Their New Year's resolution was, let's all as a group recite the curses that will happen if we don't obey this year. And those exact same curses are the same words at the end of Zechariah 14, the end of the world, as at the beginning of Israel. Fascinating, isn't it? The word, for example, the word plague in verse 12, exact same word used in Leviticus 26, 21. The word panic in verse 13, exact same word used in Deuteronomy 28, 20. So it, it, it parallels all the way through the Leviticus curses on God's people will happen to those who oppose God at, the, at Armageddon. So, let's look at it. The language is horrifying. It says that plague will come. What's the word? What is the plague? Well, we don't know. The word can mean one of three things. It can mean a blow, the fit like a blow. You take a, that's a, it could be a plague, the word plague in Hebrew. Or it could be a pestilence like an outbreak where bubonic plague or whatever that kills many people. Or it could be tumors. It's tumors whenever the Philistines captured the ark. You remember? And God infested them with tumors. Exact same word that's used here. So what is the plague going to be at the last time? We, we don't know. It could be a blow. It won't, God just strikes them with a blow. It could be a disease that breaks out. It could be individual tumors upon their bodies. But whatever happens, it's going to make their flesh rot. Rot while they're standing, eye sockets will rot, tongue will rot. Standing, seeing, speaking. Three areas that's going to rot. Now, there are some theologians that see in this picture a nuclear war. Think about it. Your flesh is incinerated. So some of them see in this picture in a nuclear attack. Well, we don't know. But there are some that believe, when reading this passage, what well, sure sounds like a nuclear attack. Billy Graham was one who was convinced in studying scriptures that the world's going to end with a nuclear attack. We don't know that. That's his interpretation of the passages. But there are theologians that look at this with your flesh literally and being incinerated. Of course, that, that can happen here in Texas. You walk out tonight. But your flesh literally being incinerated then sounds like it could possibly be a nuclear attack. So there are some that believe that because of the passage that's mentioned here. Let's go to verse 13. And on that day, talking about the end of Armageddon, a great panic, there's that curse from Leviticus again, from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will grab the hand of another. And the hand of the one will be raised up against the hand of the other. So, here's what's going to happen. 
One of the ways God's going to end the battle of Armageddon is that the armies who came against Israel are going to start fighting one another. And one soldier is going to grab for help and the other one's going to think he's attacking him and kill him. And it's going to be a panic, a confusion where the armies that come against Israel will be thrown into confusion, attack each other, and kill each other. It's happened before, hasn't it? Three times in the Old Testament. God acts that way. Sometimes God's people, remember they went to battle one time against the Midianites in Judges 7, and God said, you just need to be still. And they were outnumbered. And Israel just had to be still, and the armies, I mean, Midianites came against them, started fighting against each other. And they had the Israelites greatly outnumbered, and they killed each other off, and Israel just went and got the spoils. You remember it happened again in 1 Samuel 14 with the Philistines. It happened again in 2 Chronicles 20 with Ammon and Moab. So at least three times in the Old Testament, God made it where the armies attacking his people were thrown into a, a panic and confusion, and turn on each other and kill each other. And that same panic's going to happen at the end of the world, where the armies, part of their defeat, not all of it, part of it will come because they will be thrown into a panic, and the Lord will put the panic on them, and they'll start fighting each other. Verse 14, even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Some people believe, because some of your translations will say even Judah will fight in Jerusalem or with Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem's a city, Judah's the, the, the tribe that's a part of the city. So there are some Bible scholars that believe that even the Israel themselves will start fighting one another. But that's not really what the passage talks about. It, it literally means even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. Do yours, many of your translations probably say at or in rather than with. And so what it means is, so that Judah will, the Israelites will join the fight. God's going to fight, but Judah's going to join the fight. So these nations that come against Israel will, number one, be defeated by panic. Second of all, by the Israelites that fight against them. So there are three ways that they're going to be destroyed. God's going to fight them. They're going to fight each other. And Israel's going to fight them. And because of that, then that's how these nations that come against Israel will be destroyed. So if the word plague and if the first portion in verse 12 from the flesh rotting is nuclear, then there will be three ways. There will be God to his people and then the nuclear attack that will come as well. We don't know if that's what it is or not, but those are three instruments God will use to defeat his enemies. He talks about verse 14. Now into verse 14. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. Gold, silver, and garments, and great abundance. So here's what's going to happen. Armageddon's over. The enemies of God's people are defeated. And Israel's going to gather the spoils. All the gold and silver of these nations garments of the nations, all of them are going to be in great abundance, collected by God's people, and Jerusalem will become very wealthy and very influential. 
So Armageddon ends, begin, ends, the millennium begins, and in the millennium, Jerusalem will be the nation's capital of wealth, of influence, of everything. And so they will, all of these things, the influence and the wealth, they're going to get the spoils of the nations, Israel will, when Armageddon ends. Now look at verse 15. And a plague, there's that word again, like this plague, like the one the people had, will fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. So whatever plague humans have, the animals are going to get. That's what verse 15 is talking about. The horses are going to get the same plague that they got. Is it a nuclear attack? If it is, the nuclear attack will affect the animals as well. The horses, the mules, camels, donkeys, whatever beasts are there. Is it just a single blow, the word that's used, blow? The animals are going to get it too, humans. Is it tumors? The animals get it. Is it a widespread disease? The animals are going to get it. So whatever happens to the, to the humans will happen to the animals as well, according to verse 15. Now go to 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Now let's stop there for a moment. This is interesting. So Armageddon's over. Millennium starts. Millennium knows a thousand-year reign of peace. Jerusalem will be the center. And there will be those from the nations that came against Israel who survived. Not all of them will be killed. Those that survive, many of them will turn and worship Israel's God. They've been against God. But now they're going to turn and worship God. The same nations that attacked Israel will now bow down and worship the God of Israel. And it says they will make a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem every year like the Jews used to do. These are not Jews. They're from the nations. Every year they'll make a pilgrimage back up to Jerusalem to worship the feasts with them. And it specifically says the feast of booths. Why that one? They had three major feasts. They have Passover. They have others. Passover is their, their largest. The Feast of Booths is the last one. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles in the Bible, called the Feast of Ingathering in the Bible. Why that one? Of all the things that it tells us they're going to worship, why the Feast of Booths? Well, if you remember, they're, they're going to gather not to do battle, to worship. In the past, the nations gathered to Jerusalem to battle. Now they're gathering to worship. Feast of Booths, if you remember, one of three of most important booths on, uh, feasts on Israel's calendar. If you remember, Feast of Booths commemorated God's provision for Israel agriculturally. So if you remember, they came out of Egypt, waters parted, they're in the wilderness. 
And they're out in the desert. And if you remember, they had to live in these temporary shelters called tabernacles or booths that they lived in. And so they, it, they were on the edge of the, of the promised land. They were going through the wilderness. And so it commemorated God delivering them from Egypt, providing for them currently. And then later, he would provide agriculturally for them. And that was a part of the ingathering of the Feast of Booths as well. Strangers would come and observe this. It was time of celebration. Jesus told his disciples to go to the ends of the earth. But during the millennial period, people from the ends of the earth are going to come to Israel. But why the Feast of Booths? Why specifically is this one mentioned? We don't really know. Uh, there are many theories out there, Bible scholars, as to why Feast of Booths specifically is mentioned. The main two theories, number one, because it was the climax of the three, maybe. Well, that's maybe possible. But probably I think a better possibility is perhaps the other nations would be forced to acknowledge God has been at work in this people from the very beginning. Historically, God has been working in Israel. And they would be forced to worship and celebrate with them. God bringing them out of Egypt. God providing for them. God giving them agriculturally. God giving them a land. And all the nations will be forced to acknowledge God has been at work in this people from the very beginning. Now think about it. Today, there are a lot of people who hate Jews. Jews are the most discriminated against group in the world, Jews have been for years. They're hated, still hated today. But at the end, at the end, there will be those who are, will acknowledge these as a special people. God's been at work in them for a long time, and we're worshiping their God. That's staggering. Think about what that looks like. Nowadays, people worship Allah, third of the world worships Allah, much of the world worships nobody. But imagine the entire world forsaking those beliefs and bowing down to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and acknowledging the Jews are special people. It's a lot different, far cry from where we are right now in the world, but that's what's going to happen in the end times. Here's something else interesting. All through the Old Testament, other prophets said the same thing. Other prophets said, in the last days, nations will come to Jerusalem to worship and bring their wealth. That's what we're just told. Isaiah 2 tells us that. Micah 4 tells us that. And it tells us, and the nations will come to Jerusalem to be taught the law and taught Judaism. Isaiah 49 tells us that. Micah 7 tells us that. And that's exactly what Zechariah says is going to happen in the last days. The nations will come and worship. The nations will come and bring Israel gifts. The nations will come to Israel to be taught God's laws. Interesting. Israel has been enslaved most of their history. They have been exiles most of their history. And now at the very end, they will be at home. And nations will come to them to worship and to learn and to bring gifts. Isaiah 60, verse 1 to 21. 
says it best, Zion at the end will be a light to the nations of the world. It's going to happen after Armageddon is over. Look at verse 17. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Now, not everybody's going to, of the nations, going to come to Israel. Not everybody's going to choose to follow the Lord. Many will, but not everybody. And they're not being forced to do it. Did you notice that? God is not forcing all the nations to come because he says, for those that don't come to worship, there will be a drought upon your land. There will be no rain. God would withhold rain upon the land. Interestingly, that had been the curse for Israel's disobedience to the covenant, Deuteronomy 28, verses 22 to 24. So God is now bringing the curses that he would bring on the Israelites early in the law. He's bringing on the nations at the end. Rain was always a symbol of spiritual blessing. Not just physical rain. We need that. But it's also a symbol of spiritual blessing. So God's going to withhold the rain upon those people and those countries that do not come at the end. Verse 18. 18 and 19 together. And if a family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with, with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Israel and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to the Feast of Booths. Okay, why did he mention only Egypt? He says, for all these nations that don't go up and worship, there will be no rain upon you. Oh, and by the way, Egypt, you're going to get the same thing. Why did he single out Egypt? Well, that's the first one that enslaved the Israelites. But that's probably not the reason why. Most Bible scholars believe the reason he singled out Egypt is because Egypt does not rely upon rain for water. They rely upon the Nile. So a lot of Bible scholars believe Egypt was the exception because it did not depend upon rain. So Egypt may say, ah, it's not going to bother us. Don't send rain. That's fine. We have fresh water from the Nile. But if you remember, God struck the Nile with plagues where the water turned to blood. And so he's saying here again, don't think you're going to get off Egypt because you don't rely upon rain for water because I'll bring a plague upon the Nile so you're not getting off. And then look at the last two verses, verses 20 and 21, and we'll close. One Bible scholar said there could be no more horrifying passage to a Jewish priest than verses 20 and 21 of Zechariah 14. Let's read it and see why. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord! And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts, 
on that day. The most horrifying passage to a Jewish priest. Why? In that day, verses 21 and 21 says, whenever the millennium has begun, what he's saying here is even the most common object will be consecrated to God's glory. There will be no secular and sacred. There will be no profane and holy. There will be no clean and unclean. There will be no Jew and Gentile. There will be no difference. What will matter will not be nationality, but those who worship the Lord and those who don't. And God's saying in that day, even the most mundane item is going to be holy to the Lord. What do Jewish priests believe? There are certain things that are holy. And you reverence those. Those are the clean. Those are the holy. Those are the ones that are so, so holy that only God can see them. But now everything's going to be holy to the Lord. And the priests are going to go, I want, ah, that's, no, no. Everything will be holy to the Lord. Remember the phrase we talked about earlier in the, in the study of Zechariah, holy to the Lord? And remember he telling you that the high priest in Exodus 28, 36, the high priest had a turban, and on the turban it says, holy to the Lord. So the high priest wore this special garment out of all the garments in Israel, a special garment, holy to the Lord, and it signified the holiness and the otherness of God. And they just, they reveled in that, oh, that's so good. In this day, even the horse's collars are going to say holy to the Lord. Common horse, common collar. Even the bells on the horses will say holy to the Lord because everything's going to be sacred. The ordinary cooking pots in the temple would be as holy as those pots they would bring before the brazen altar with the sacrificial blood that they saw. So holy, your cooking pot's going to be holy to the Lord. Distinctions between the sacred and secular will no longer exist because everything is going to be God's and the nation will acknowledge Jerusalem will be the holiest place to live because everything in Jerusalem is going to be dedicated to God. I can't imagine what that looks like, do you? But it will. There will be holiness in public life, the horses and the bells, in religious life, cooking pots, and in private life, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah, even the common things are going to be holy. Now, a couple of notes, and then we'll close. It's interesting during the millennial period that there will evidently still be animal sacrifices. Did you notice that? Animal sacrifices in the millennium? Are they needed? Well, no, they're not needed. They don't appear to be an atonement for sin. They will look back upon the perfect work of Jesus, who is our sacrificial lamb in our atonement. But the sacrifices will point to Christ. But they evidently will still be made. Which is kind of interesting. And the second note that I find interesting here is, Dr. Ralph Smith talks about this. No temple is mentioned. Did you notice that? No temple is mentioned in Jerusalem. I thought they rebuilt the temple. It's not here. No mention of it. 
Revelation 21 verse 22 says, the new Jerusalem will not have a temple. It will not need a temple. The, the God, the Father, God Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. That's what Revelation 21 says. Well, kind of interesting that there is no temple. There are Bible scholars that believe there will be no millennial temple. Ezekiel was not talking about that, some scholars say. So, no temples mentioned here. Kind of interesting. So, as you look and wrap up, notice the very last thing it says, the very last sentence. And there will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. What does that mean? Well, the word traitor there is translated into English as traitor, but the word literally in Hebrew is Canaanite. You remember the Canaanites? The Canaanites were the ones that lived in the promised land before Israel. They're the ones that Israel, when they marched into the promised land, they had to defeat. Remember they marched around Jericho seven times, walls fell down. Those were Canaanites. They went on up to Ai. Those were Canaanites. Everybody that lived, most everybody that lived in the promised land, Canaanites. And God told the Israelites, when you go in, destroy every one of them. If you don't, you're going to end up worshiping their God and they're going to be a snare to you. So they went into the land and they disobeyed God. They did not kill all the Canaanites and they were a snare to them. And the Canaanites got them into worship of other gods and really led them astray from the Lord. The Canaanites were a thorn in their side. And now he says, the last day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. Canaanites throughout Israel's history represented the people who were morally and spiritually unclean. If you think about it, most nations in that day will be like the Canaanites of the Old Testament. Yet all of them will come and acknowledge that God is the only true God and worship Him. And bad influence will no longer be there. The Canaanites will no longer be in the house of the Lord. And that's how Zechariah ends the prophecy. Now, if you were one of those old Jews that came back from Babylon and you were sitting around for 18 years discouraged because it was hot and you didn't have enough money and is, it's not going to be this like it used to be anyway, and you heard all this about Jerusalem and what's going to happen at the end, the nations are all going to come to you and this city is going to be glorious, it'd make you want to pick up your hammer again, wouldn't it, and go back to work. That's what they did. Zechariah, powerful ministry to his people. And they kept going, realizing God's not done with us. There's a better day coming. So keep at it. And you know, that may be encouraging for you tonight. Maybe you've gotten discouraged in your work. Who knows? I'm thinking, well, not, not going to be the same anymore. doesn't really matter anymore. And maybe you get discouraged at times. But keep picking up the hammer and keep going to work. Because God redeems everything. And he's going to redeem his people. He's going to use you and me in the process until we get there. All right, that's all I know about Zechariah. took me 18 weeks to tell you, but we're done. And we'll continue looking at other topics in the rest of the summer. And then start looking at First Peter on August the 30th. Have any questions or comments, well, see me afterwards or feel free to email me. Let's pray together. God, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for the powerful prophecy of Zechariah. And Lord, just thank you for what's going to happen at the end where you reign victorious. 
Evil doesn't win. The world doesn't win. Ideologies of the world don't win. You do. And I thank you for that. So, Father, would you encourage our spirits, even tonight, with that thought. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.